This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Welcome. This is the Engine Room of Democracy. My name is John Hamry, and I'm pleased to welcome today a very distinguished friend and colleague, Glenn Gerstel. The purpose of this series is to explain to citizens how rule of law works in practice, in the real world. And we listen to, in each of these sessions, a very distinguished individual who has chosen to serve their country in a meaningful way. Today, Glenn Gerstel is our guest. He was a distinguished senior partner in the very fabled uh, law firm of Milbank. And at the height of his career, I mean, I remember talking to him about this. He said he wanted to enter public service. And I was quite impressed by that. He retired from Milbank, and he became the general counsel for the National Security Agency. Now, NSA is probably the technically premier intelligence service for the United States government. So he was in the middle of almost every important espionage requirement that the country has. So we're going to discuss today the really interesting question, how do democracies spy in a lawful manner? America, like any country, has a national interests that need to be protected. The government has to protect the country. There are secret operations we have to undertake. But democracies conduct these operations in very disciplined ways. And we're going to explore that today. How do democracies conduct espionage in a lawful manner. Glenn, welcome. Delighted that you're with us. I'm so excited to hear you. Thank you so much, John. And let me say that uh, I'm grateful for this opportunity and honored uh, by the opportunity to, number one, participate with you, a good friend, and number two, to delve into such a critically important topic. So thanks for doing this and your leadership on this topic. Glenn, thank you. Let's start. I, I think each of these sessions, I've tried to begin with the U.S. Constitution. I want to anchor this in what are the foundational guiding documents for our national construction. Tell me, how did the Constitution work for what you did at NSA? I think I'm asking a broader question here. Use this as an opportunity to tell us about the Constitution, the law, and how NSA fits it. Thanks, John. Well, you're starting at absolutely the right place. 
since June 21st, 1788, when it was ratified, the Constitution has been the supreme law of the land. And, and what a fascinating statement that is. We all appreciate how the Constitution was really an extraordinary, unprecedented experiment in government uh, in the late 18th century. There was nothing like it. And here we have a statement that says the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, not a king who rules by hereditary or divine right, uh, not even an institution, a form of government, a council, anything. It's just a document that expresses an idea. And that idea fundamentally is, is about the rule of law. There's nothing more important than the Constitution. And no surprise, it affects every organ of the federal government, including the National Security Agency. I'll talk about that in a second. But the Constitution did three fundamental things, all of which were relevant ultimately to NSA and indeed, as I said, every organ of government. One, it enshrined the rule of law as the fundamental basis for our form of government. Two, it established the tripartite form of government that we have with checks and balances between the Congress, the legislative branch on one hand, the executive branch on the other, and the judiciary finally. And third, through the Bill of Rights, it set limits on the federal government's power. So all three of those important functions were manifest in our work at NSA. We made sure that everything we did was scrupulously within the bounds of the law. My job as the general counsel was to ensure that that was indeed the case. And I can report that it absolutely was in terms of our compliance with the statutes that govern NSA's activities, the rules and regulations of both the executive branch and the judicial branch, and then the various court orders that were issued by uh, federal courts binding on the NSA. And also, uh, NSA made sure that in its dealings with Congress and the executive branch, it followed the rule of law there too. We honored the separation of powers. Uh, we honored the protocols and procedures within the executive department. And then finally, through the all-important Fourth Amendment, which sets limits on the extent of government surveillance, we scrupulously adhered to the requirements of the Fourth Amendment. So this foundational document reached even down to the day-to-day -day operations of the National Security Agency, as it very well should. Let me, let me add just one more thing, sort of personal as a lawyer, and talk about how I thought a little bit about how the rule of law was so manifest. Um, you know, the rule of law is not mentioned expressly in the Constitution. It, does, it doesn't say we shall have the rule of law. But it's quite obvious uh, in the concept of judicial review, which is the idea that no one is above the law. What a fascinating and, again, unprecedented statement for the time. The system of following precedent so that judges aren't free to follow their whim or personal or political desires, but are bound by prior legal determinations. And then ultimately, the fascinating part is that since no one branch of government is superior to the other, they're all co-equal, by definition, we must have the rule of law because the judiciary, if it issues an order, if the Supreme Court says something, the president and the executive branch have no choice but to follow it up. It's because of respect and fervent belief in the rule of law, not because the judiciary is going to send a sheriff to someone. So that's really a fascinating consequence of the way the Constitution is constructed. I think for our listeners, Glenn, at this stage, help us understand what is the National Security Agency? What does it do? What does it do for America? The National Security Agency was founded in 1952. I don't remember it well. I was just a few months old at the time. But uh, <laughs> it was founded by a secret order of President Harry Truman, which became public only decades later. 
originally the NSA was jokingly referred to as no such agency because it wasn't public at all, but it, it had from its inception two missions. One which is very well known, which is a foreign signals intelligence mission. Signals intelligence is the, is the fancy term for spying using eavesdropping on originally radio signals. And nowadays, everything from satellites to electronic communications, email, telephone, internet communications, etc. But it's all two things. One, it's electronic surveillance. And number two, it's focused overseas on foreigners. It does not engage in domestic spying. The second function, which is less heralded originally, but now of great significance, is what used to be called an information assurance task. And that involved making sure that all of our codes and ciphers used by the military was safe and secure, such examples as the president's ability to command a nuclear weapon, God forbid it should ever be needed, so that the entire communication from the president to a uh, Minuteman silo or whatever was absolutely secure and couldn't be disrupted or indeed uh, spoofed by, a, by an adversary. That was originally the mission. It goes hand in hand with the ability to crack codes on the other side to get into an adversary's network, so there's a sort of symbiotic relationship between the two. Now that cyber has become so important, the general cybersecurity mission of the agency has taken on a great prominence. It's one of 16 operating agencies that engage in some kind of surveillance and intelligence gathering operations of the United States government. They're all grouped together after the 9-11 terrorist activity, which caused us all to rethink how we organize the intelligence function in the United States. And all 16 agencies are now under the direction of the uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And the NSA is the largest of those organizations with about 40,000 people. It's also part of the Pentagon. So it's sort of dual-hatted in the sense that it reports both to the Secretary of Defense and the Director of National Intelligence. Now, could I ask, I mean, you, it is a national intelligence agency, which means it's looking outside. But I know that also you have some obligations domestically. Can you share with us what is the relationship between looking outside, looking inside, national security, domestic law enforcement. Can you help us understand what that is like for you? Sure, and a very, very important distinction. So let's start with the fundamental premise that the National Security Agency and its sister organizations, such as the Central Intelligence Agency and the Defense Intelligence Agency, they are fundamentally and almost exclusively, with very, very limited exceptions, focused on overseas activity, the activity of foreigners, not U.S. citizens, not spying on Americans in the United States, indeed not spying on really on anyone in the United States, with a couple of exceptions which were important, we'll talk about in a minute. But fundamentally, it's focused on overseas activities. It is not engaged in law enforcement. That's the province of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as well as on state and local levels of law enforcement. Uh, so there is a clear dividing line. NSA is not looking for evidence in a criminal context. It's not gathering evidence. It's not safeguarding it. It's not presenting it at trial. It's not working with prosecutors at all. It's simply looking for clues overseas about what our adversaries are doing so that we can help protect our national well-being. And there is a dividing line between what NSA does and the FBI, and that is adhered to. Having said that, one of the consequences of the 9-11 terrorist attack is we realized there was a wall between domestic law enforcement on one hand and the domestic intelligence associated with that, again, undertaken by the FBI, not the NSA. And some of the information that NSA and CIA are able to obtain overseas. And the realization was that 
there were separate silos or separate forms of intelligence gathering that weren't being meshed in an analytic sense, not in a criminal justice sense, but in an analytic sense. So as a result, there's much greater integration in an analytic sense uh, with each agency responsible for its own set of rules, its own set of collection, its own set of querying data and safeguarding data. Uh, so there's a sharing at an intelligence analysis level, which is very important for our country. And yet there are still dividing lines that are carefully adhered to because of the different safeguards we want to associate with each activity. So, Glenn, let me, we started off and I asked you about, you know, the Constitution. And, of course, and then you responded about how crucial the Bill of Rights was. So, Amendment 4 of the Bill of Rights is the so-called privacy amendment. You know, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizure. This was adopted back in 1792. Wiretapping back then probably meant, you know, stealing somebody's iron samples or something. I don't know. But how does this constitutional stipulation work? How does NSA, with its vast capacities, accommodate this fundamental right of privacy? Well, John, you're very right to focus on the history, and I think that's illustrative and revealing for our purposes in figuring out how it applies today. You're right. It was adopted in 1792, obviously, before there was even any notion of electronic eavesdropping. And it really grew out of the colonists' resentment and fury at the British Crown troops bursting into homes without any warning, uh, looking for contraband, looking mostly for items that British tax hadn't been paid on. <laughs> and so they burst into homes either with no excuse whatsoever or with just a general warrant that said you could go into XYZ home and look for whatever you want. Uh, and they found whatever they want. So the colonists were very upset at this personal intrusion. And as a result, Madison promoted, along with others, this amendment adopted again in the very, very late uh, 1700s, in part, I might add, almost based word for word on an earlier provision in the Massachusetts Constitution. And if you looked at the legal cases that arose for the first, oh, I don't know, 150 years or so under the Fourth Amendment, almost all of them had to do with this very physical sense of limiting the government's ability to physically intrude on your home, your business in some way. And electronic cases, electronic eavesdropping didn't arise until much later. Indeed, it was as late as 19, I think 27 or 28, when a case came up to the Supreme Court that involved uh, federal agents putting a wiretap, old-fashioned alligator clips, on a bootlegger's uh, telephone line. And the Supreme Court said at that time, no, eavesdropping this way, wiretapping this way has nothing to do with the Fourth Amendment. Why? Because it's not a seizure. Nothing's being seized. Words are being communicated on a copper wire. Uh, nothing's being searched. They're just listening in. And you could have achieved the same result, the court said, by had you had a policeman stood outside the window while you were on the phone call. I might add this was the days before air conditioning, so you could have stood outside the window. But of course, the main factor then is that the telephone wasn't very significant. It took many years, surprisingly, until 1967 before the Supreme Court finally mm. said and picked up on a brilliant dissent by Brandeis in the earlier uh, 1928 case and said there is indeed a right of privacy. Electronic eavesdropping, wiretapping does implicate the Fourth Amendment, and you generally would need a search warrant to do so obtained by a federal judge. 
But this illustrates the brilliance, really, of the Fourth Amendment. Obviously, there's nothing in it that even mentions the word privacy. There's nothing in it that mentions the word wiretapping or electronic surveillance. But it establishes a principle, a principle that under the rule of law, we want to limit the federal government's intrusiveness and ability to interfere with the personal lives of its citizens. And that principle is sufficiently elastic, as interpreted by the courts, to allow us to address new technologies such as, such as wiretapping. So of course now, fast forward to today, it's very clear that the Fourth Amendment absolutely does apply to activities undertaken by uh, the National Security Agency and other organs of the federal government. NSA strictly adhered to the Constitution as well as the statutes that were adopted in accordance with the Fourth Amendment to make sure that we were engaged um, only in constitutionally permitted uh, forms of surveillance consistent with the Supreme Court's decision. Glenn, the, you know, the, the Fourth Amendment, while it says that you can't do unreasonable search and seizure unless there is some form of due process authorization. So we have, we've evolved in this, in your world, this notion of probable cause that there is a reason that the government should listen in on private communications. But that reasoning has to be explained to and authorized by an independent organization, the judiciary. How does that work for the NSA? You're absolutely right that uh, the Constitution through the Fourth Amendment does set some clear rules, again, general principles, not specific details, but general principles that are now understood to require all searches and seizures be reasonable and that in certain cases they be supported by a search warrant. A search warrant is issued by a federal judge or magistrate, again, an independent branch of government, based on showing of probable cause. What is that? Well, it's not defined precisely in law, but over the years we have a pretty clear understanding of what it means. It's clearly something more than a hunch or a tip or a suspicion. It has to be probable cause in the, in the criminal context. It's probable cause that a crime has been committed or is about to be committed. And in the context of foreign intelligence surveillance, it's probable cause that a, in this case, a U.S. citizen or U.S. person um, is an agent of a foreign power or is spying mm -hmm. on behalf of a foreign government. And the way probable cause is established is usually by the testimony of a FBI agent or some other federal official who swears out an affidavit under penalty of perjury given to the court with specific facts saying, this is why we, the FBI, for example, believe that this particular person engaged in a crime or is an agent of a foreign power. Here are the facts to back up that assertion. That's why we believe it to be probable, not merely a possibility. And here are the specific things that we want to search. We want to search this phone number because this phone number is associated with that person. Here's a billing record that, that connects the two, et cetera. There's a great deal of specificity that goes into these court applications. Let me make it clear that no U.S. person is targeted for surveillance anywhere around the world without a showing of probable cause. I want to repeat that. So U.S. persons anywhere around the world enjoy the protection of the Fourth Amendment. Even if you're overseas, even if you're an American born abroad and you've never set foot once in the United States, you still get the protection of the Fourth Amendment. And that means that if the U.S. government wants 
to do surveillance on you because it believes, for example, that you've either committed a crime or that you're an agent of a foreign power spying on behalf of a foreign power, it needs to establish probable cause before a federal magistrate. These are really powerful tools that we've given to the NSA. I mean, it is a remarkably sophisticated organization. We've put limits on them, and we've said you know, constitutional constraints, etc. So the question comes to how do we oversee the operations of a secret organization with powerful resources that can be right on the edge what Americans worry a lot about, their own personal privacy. There are multiple dimensions of oversight. You know, it's, you know, within the executive branch, it's the judiciary, it's with the Congress, etc. Let's explore it. First of all, tell me the outlines of oversight as you looked at it. You, you know, you were probably the chief oversight officer, you know, for the NSA. So uh, give us your initial thoughts about oversight. Sure. Oversight, as you surmise, consumed a huge portion of my time, and rightly so, as the general counsel. When I was in private practice in Washington, uh, I used to have clients who complained their industry was overly regulated by the federal government. Every now and then, I would have a client who'd say, gee, my company or my industry is the most regulated in the, in the United States. I sometimes had a little sympathy for them, but only when I got to the NSA did I realize, oh, no, no, they're all wrong. The National Security Agency is the most <laughs> regulated entity in the United States. Yeah. And let me be very clear right here that I am not complaining. There's a good reason it is subject to multiple and redundant layers of oversight because of the nature of what it does. We want to make sure that if it's engaged in some potentially intrusive activity that is subject to the Fourth Amendment, we want to make sure that it scrupulously adheres to the Constitution and the statute. So no complaints at all on the level of regulation. But there were multiple layers of this. Suffice it to say that there's both internal regulation within the organization consisting of oversight by my office, the Office of General Counsel. There's a separate presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed Inspector General. There was an internal division of compliance. There certainly was a culture of self-reporting and compliance, which I found very reassuring when I got there. So there's internal oversight. There's external within the executive branch in the form of the Department of Justice and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which, among other things, reviews every targeting decision under certain sections of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. There's external entities within the executive branch, such as the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, an independent body, the President's Intelligence Advisory uh, Board, and of course, internally within the Pentagon itself, separate layers of oversight. And then finally, and most importantly, Congress through two congressional committees and the federal judiciary through the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and the general federal district court. So lots and lots of layers of of oversight, admittedly duplicative, uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. One of the things that you mentioned, Glenn, was the FISA court. You know, for our listeners, FISA stands for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It was an act that was adopted about 40 years ago. It established controls and guidelines over uh, the operation of the intelligence community, and it established a court, a unique court that would authorize or not authorize surveillance activities. Glenn, tell us about the FISA court. How did it affect your world? As you suspect, the FISA court was very much a key element of my, my work at the National Security Agency because 
FISA is probably the single most important operational national security uh, statute for our entire federal government. And uh, the National Security Agency was, was no exception to that. So the, the statute FISA was adopted, as you said, in 1978. Interestingly, it had bipartisan support, but interestingly, the sponsor was none other than liberal Senator Ted Kennedy, who was mm. the principal sponsor of FISA, growing out of uh, earlier abuses uh, d- during the Nixon era that Congress wanted to react to. The statute does a number of things, all keeping with the constitutional requirements as then interpreted, but most significantly, it set up a brand new court to deal with an entire new surveillance architecture. It's quite a comprehensive scheme. The new court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, sits in Washington. It has 11 judges on it that are appointed by the Chief Justice on a rotating basis. Its operations, most unusually, are conducted in secret. Why are they conducted in secret? Because it's considering classified information about our adversaries. It's looking at who we need to target for purposes of keeping our nation secure. And so we certainly can't have those adversaries tipped off in public as to the nature of our surveillance. So this court has a security clearance and undertakes its activities in secret. Obviously, that's inconsistent with the rest of the way the rest of the federal judiciary works. So there certainly are some tensions there that need to be addressed. It's not an adversarial process, largely, in that in normal federal court, you have a plaintiff and defendant, or you have a prosecutor and a, and a defendant. Here, the target isn't present for obvious reasons. We certainly don't want the target knowing we're about to spy on him or her. And indeed, even the communications provider whose systems are about to be used to spy on the target, if, if an order is granted, is typically not present. So it's a, a unilateral approach by the government. There is an option for the court to appoint a friend of the court, an outside expert, to advise it on tricky questions or novel questions. That certainly is done. But the safeguards for this are, number one, we should, of course, recognize that we're dealing here with surveillance, not criminal prosecution. So perhaps the standards are arguably a little bit lower, even though surveillance is certainly intrusive. If we are talking about a criminal prosecution, that's not handled by the FISA court. That's handled by separately by other federal courts. And the way it works is the government presents evidence, probable cause, as I described before, in the form of affidavits or detailed testimony. The court is not a rubber stamp. Matters go to the court seeking a surveillance warrant on a particular target, foreign target. And sometimes the court will say, we don't have enough information. This doesn't sound right. Get get us more information. Answer these questions. And they'll send the application back. On rare occasions, they'd flatly turn it down. So it was by no means a rubber stamp. Yeah, I know my own personal experience when I was deputy secretary, you would sign the petitions, you know, from you guys. And I was always surprised. I mean, they almost invariably agreed with anything we're already doing, but they almost always rejected anything new we wanted to do. It just struck me as being, you know, they couldn't both be right. But Glenn, let me ask, you say it is an unusual court. You know, most courts establish their legitimacy and their ongoing legitimacy. It's just not a one-time thing, but their ongoing legitimacy by explaining their ruling on a case. You know, they publish why they ruled the way they did, but the FISA court doesn't. How do you feel that that affects the legitimacy of the FISA court because it stays silent on its rulings? So you've clearly hit upon exactly the tension that is first and foremost in the nature of the court, which is it is a secret court and it must be secret. I don't think anyone's going to debate that. 
And yet, by the same token, we absolutely want it to enjoy the kind of public confidence that it needs. Uh, this is true for our entire federal judiciary that has to have the respect of the public in order for it to function and in order for its determinations and decisions to be, to be accepted. So the way it accomplishes that is several fold. Uh, one, as I've mentioned, there's a statute that clearly delineates exactly what it does. It has a rotating group of judges to give some assurance. It's not as though one judge sits there for his or her lifetime. The officers of the government who appear before it are, generally speaking, the professional non-political appointees. These are career appointees of the Justice Department and elsewhere in the federal government. There is a court of review where decisions of the FISA court are subject to review by another court, so that's important, and ultimately to the Supreme Court to give it a sense of legitimacy. There are circumstances where an aggrieved party can protest. They're, they're limited. Uh, but most significantly, the opinions ultimately are issued after the fact in a declassified form. So they do become public. And the key elements of the court's reasoning, although sometimes not the details which remain classified, but the key elements of the court's reasoning are made public, sometimes months or even years after the fact, but nonetheless, they are made public. They do show a consistent form of reasoning and judicial following of precedent. We've recently had a number of situations in which some court opinions have been made public, along with the filings of the so-called amicus or friend of the court briefs. So there is, I think, a sufficient amount of information available to the public with the understanding that some classified details will be omitted to cause one to have confidence in the process. Fascinating. You know, can I ask you to return again to a bit about the oversight of the Congress? You know, I mean, there's been a lot of criticism over the last two years, a lot of it politically grounded. You know, it's about the controversies of the day, you know, whether or not intelligence community was spying on the president, et cetera, and during his campaign. Share with us how the oversight of the Congress affects you on a daily basis. I know their tools are blunter, less precise, but they can be more powerful. How did congressional oversight work during the time you were at NSA? Congressional oversight is absolutely a key element of the overall oversight architecture established for our, our national security agencies. The current system grew out of abuses by President Nixon and his administration in engaging in illegal domestic spying, and the reaction to that was so severe that in the late 70s, growing out of a series of very famous hearings, the Church-Pike congressional hearings, Congress not only adopted the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, established the FISA court, as we've discussed, but also established two select committees in Congress. Select because the membership was determined by the leadership who were handpicking highly qualified, responsible senators and congressmen who enjoyed the respect and support of their colleagues. The idea was that we would establish small committees with selected senators and congressmen who would be let in on the classified details of what our nation's intelligence apparatus was doing. And because the rest of the members respected and supported the members on the committee, there was an understanding that if they're keeping a watch on it, that's certainly something I have confidence in as an average congressman or senator. And therefore, the system worked with just a select group having this information. And at a time when there was a little greater respect, shall we say, uh, and greater collegiality within the two chambers, this system worked fine. 
that system has eroded significantly. It's, I think, I'm not making a Republican or Democratic statement. I'm just making a, an observation that I think it's fair to say that the nature of Congress has changed significantly in, in the four decades since the, that statute was established. Brand new members of Congress feel perfectly comfortable challenging 30 and 40 year veterans of, of Congress and their opinions and determinations, including on the select intelligence committees. So they originally operated in a very bipartisan way. They now are significantly more prone to partisan, probably more in the House than the Senate, which still maintains some level of bipartisanship. But the committee's functioning is absolutely critical to the National Security Agency and the other elements of our intelligence uh, community. The way it works right now is the committees have a general oversight function. Broadly speaking, their view, at least, is that there's nothing that they aren't entitled to see and examine and look into. On the other hand, there is a separation of powers. So clearly, the intelligence community does take the position that while, yes, we understand the full scope of oversight, Nonetheless, the intelligence reports and certain information is really the executive branch's responsibility in province. And we can go back to our very first president, George Washington, who recognized there was certain information that was, in his view, inappropriate for the executive to share with Congress. So there is a little bit of tension growing out of the separation of powers. But putting that aside, the key relationship has to be has to be one of mutual trust between the intelligence community on one hand and the two congressional oversight committees on the other. Sometimes that gets frayed and tried. Uh, I think the current circumstances right now are in that latter category. Uh, But at the end of the day, both institutions want to do the right thing and ultimately depend on cooperation and respect. And to go back to our topic, respect for the rule of law. You really answered my next question, which was the politics of it. And unfortunately, the politics are more brittle. But I would think if we all step back from the tactical battles that we endure every day about politics, there's just a shared understanding of the crucial role the intelligence community plays and the framework of control around that intelligence community. We've reached our hour here, Glenn, but let me just summarize first before I turn to you. I think what we've heard again today is that the rule of law is absolutely, is fundamental. It's baked into our government in a fundamental way. It's grounded on the Constitution. It's deeply embedded. We've created institutions to monitor and ensure compliance. We have detailed procedures where we monitor and make sure that people are complying with rule of law. And it does depend, as you just said, on a political consensus that this is in America's best organic natural interest. So let me turn to you for any final thoughts, Glenn. We'd welcome any comments you have. Well, again, thank you for doing this. It's uh, such a critical topic. And of course, at this time in our nation's current political environment, when I think tensions are more frayed, there's a greater divisiveness right now, especially in a presidential election year. It's important for us all to remind ourselves what does connect us, which is a respect for the rule of law and an understanding of how this country was formed and the ideals upon which it was based. On one hand, that sounds very lofty. On the other hand, I saw it every day in my day-to-day action at the National Security Agency, and I know hundreds and millions of other federal officers see that in their own activities throughout the government. I recall uh, two things, just a personal note. One is uh, almost every day I would be in the office of either the director or the deputy director advising on something, and right there on the wall is the Constitution set out Mm. in the office there. It's not there for show. It's 
it's there for a very important reason. And then secondly, I had been a lawyer for 40 years and certainly had a duty to clients under the Bar Association's canons of ethics, so to speak. But nothing prepared me for the first day I walked into the National Security Agency. And the first thing I was told to do was to swear an oath, an oath to the Constitution and to support the rule of law. Every senior federal officer does this. Quite remarkable. As I said, I never did that for a client in 40 years of practicing law, but that's something I did the first day I walked into the National Security Agency. And it was a meaningful thing that pervaded every single thing I did every day I was on the job. And I know that's true for other federal officers as well. Glenn Gerstel, a brilliant lawyer, a public servant, a patriot. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done. We're so grateful for it. Thank you. Really appreciated this chance. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog of